Scottish Catholic composer Sir James Macmillan explores Vaughan Williams' complex faith life as someone who lived through both world wars and witnessed up close great suffering and destruction. The son of a Gloucestershire vicar, Vaughan Williams was once described as a Christian agnostic. Much of his music is a cry of horror at the human condition and yet he was constantly drawn back to the Anglican liturgy, Latin Mass, the Bible, Pilgrim's Progress and old hymn tunes. James Macmillan talks with scholars and musicologists M. Marshall Luck, Stephen Johnson and conductor Sir Andrew Davis about Vaughan Williams' religious upbringing and the experiences of his life which were reflected in his attitude towards faith and religion. You can hear the interviews in full on BBC Sounds' Faith in Music programme. I think my fascination and indeed love of the music of Vaughan Williams chimes with the experience of many people who have found hearing something like the Fantasia and a theme by Thomas Tallis as a profoundly numinous experience. When it comes down to it, there is something beautiful about this music that opens up horizons, that makes one feel as if one's going into a, a very special and spiritual place. I can even hear in a work like the Tallis Fantasia something of Vaughan Williams's struggle with and at the same time marvellous resolution of his own position. Stephen Johnson, writer, broadcaster and composer. If you think about it, it begins with one of the most exquisitely scored chords in all music, that incredible widely spaced chord. It's like walking into Gloucester Cathedral where the town of Faith Fantasia was first performed, part of the diocese that uh, Fort Williams' father belonged to. And you go in and there's this magnificent east window, huge window, the great grassy window, and you, you're aware of the light streaming in from it. But then as your eyes adjust and you look around you and the darkness becomes clearer, you can see that you're surrounded with tombs and images of mortality. And a lot of the interior is quite sombre. It's this juxtaposition of dark and light faith and doubt, which runs through any examination of Von Williams and his inspirations. As a teenager, he declared himself an atheist, and after he died, his widow described him as an agnostic. And yet, his actual music seems to hint at a greater complexity and nuance in what's going on. So you start with this radiant chord, and then gradually it darkens, and the next thing you hear is Talis's own hymn, which Vaughan Williams, when he used that hymn in his great collection of hymns, the English hymnal, associated with words very much connected with the Christian struggling with the idea of death. So we have this contrast between light, radiance, transcendence, and mortality. And I think that a lot of that work can be seen as a a struggle to recapture that vision. And yes, it does, and no, it doesn't. And so you're left with this position of thinking, there is something in this, but what is it? I don't know. And 
being able to tolerate that kind of dissonance, that position Keats called negative capability, where you can be in doubts, uncertainties, enigmas, riddles, without, as he put it, an irritable reaching out after fact and logic, that's what he thinks, for me, he expresses in that music. I don't think it's entirely just my own reaction to this music. I sense that something of Vaughan Williams's really interesting pilgrimage, it is a pilgrimage, can be felt in the process of that piece and in many others too. thinking forward, he was thinking differently, he delved deeply into English folk culture, the English folk song and much much earlier British music from the Tudor times in order to build a new music. In that sense, in spite of what many people may think about Vaughan Williams, Vaughan Williams was a very modernist, future oriented composer. His music sounded simultaneously brand new and deeply archaic as well. It was that strange fusion of the new and the old that makes his music so beautiful. I think it is entirely acceptable to think of Paul Williams as radical. And it is an absolute travesty that he's come to be seen as old-fashioned, you know. And young musicians in this country, like Ivor Gurney and Herbert Howells, who are in their teens, Hearing this for the first time at its premiere in 1910, they could neither of them sleep afterwards. This sense that this music had opened a door in a completely new world. They both described walking around Gloucester all night talking about this music and what it meant for them. I think a composer like Vaughan Williams, who lived through the century of violence, who lived through that century of the retreat of faith, is someone that in many ways marks what it means to be a modern and marks out territory for what it means to live in the modern world. And yet, in spite of his self-declared agnosticism and atheism, there is a fascinating spiritual journey going on in his music itself, not just in the fact that he chose to set the mystical poetry of Houseman and Whitman and so on, but he set liturgical texts. Did he believe this or what? Where was his spiritual journey going? And because it's not immediately clear, it's a very good reason why we should be doing this with this composer. Vaughan Williams was uh, born in Gloucestershire in the village of Down Anthony where his father was the vicar. Andrew Davis, 
a famous British conductor and president of the Von Williams Society. Actually, my favourite hymn tune is by Vaughan Williams and it's called Down Anthony and is uh, what I think is a wonderful hymn in terms of text, uh, Come Down, O Love Divine. director of the English Music Festival. His father was vicar at a church in Downampney in Gloucestershire, but died when Vaughan Williams was under three years old. Vaughan Williams then moved to Leith Hill Place near Dorking in Surrey. And he received, on the one hand, what would have been a fairly normal Victorian Christian upbringing. Uh, there was singing of hymns on Sundays after tea. Vaughan Williams probably first encountered atheism at Field House, his primary school. There was a lot of talk of war and one of the boys said that he was an atheist and if he went off to war and was killed then the others back home must not remember him in their prayers. And Vaughan Williams later recounted finding this both impressive and reasonable. He went to the Royal College of Music and to Trinity, Cambridge to study. And it was at Trinity that we hear from Bertrand Russell writing to Michael Kennedy that he once stormed into Hall saying, and who believes in God nowadays, I'd like to know. Stephen, how would you describe the man? Well, very big man, very, and certainly in later life, um, very gener emotionally generous, warm, looks archetypally English in some way. I think Aaron Copeland said he looked like a farmer. Um, very much associated with the English pastoral outdoors way of life. And yet, this is a man of great complexity, whose very long life took him from the late Victorian era to the age of the atom bomb. And I think one of the surprises for people who get to know his music, if they know him from The Lark Ascending or that wonderful Talis Fantasia, is just what a range of expression there is and how dark some of it can be. What were the defining moments in the life of Von Williams? One of them was meeting Gustav Holst at the Royal College of Music and then becoming fast friends for life and discovering English folk music they saturated themselves in it. They walked about the country collecting it and recording it. Then another defining experience, of course, is that of being an ambulance driver in World War I, where he experienced some truly terrible things. I mean, there's a description of him driving the ambulance over this terrible pothole road, and every time the, the ambulance bumped, you would hear these cries of agony, screams from the soldiers, the wounded soldiers in the back of the ambulance. So this was going on on an almost day-to-day -day basis. And then he had to come home to England and in some way rediscover himself as a composer and somehow come to terms with what he'd experienced there. And, well, his great, great friend and biographer, Michael Kennedy, said that he didn't think that Vaughan Williams saw a lot of hope for humanity by the end of his life. It's about being able to take what's offered. I mean, there was, there's no question that he, he believed, as I do, in 
some kind of great spiritual force for good. Exactly what it is, I think he, he kind of fussed around that question all his life, you know. There are a number of quotes that come down to us from Vaughan Williams from his lectures and his writings that describe the role in which Vaughan Williams saw music as transmitting something divine in allowing people to reach through to a more spiritual state. He says, for example, the object of all art is to obtain a partial revelation of that which is beyond human sense and human faculties, of that which is in fact spiritual. Stephen is a poet who used to live in Dunkeld, and he's been on this programme many times. Kenneth explores why people are drawn to poetry in times of crisis. Today, Kenneth looks at Stopping in the Wood by Robert Frost, read by Emma Fielding. We often choose poetry to express the most profound depths of our emotions. 
our grief, our longing, our struggle to understand the complexities and riddles of existence. Perhaps poems are of such appeal because we can jump in at the deep end, into the very middle of the emotion. With a story we are constrained by the necessities of some form of beginning, middle and end. With a poem we can get to the very core of things in the first words. Robert Frost's much-loved and oft-recited poem, Stopping by Woods on a Snowy Evening, is such a poem. It's simple enough for a four-year-old to understand. Yet at the close we know neither who the narrator is, nor the purpose of his journey. In the very first words we sense the mystery and the wonder of the place where we have been taken. Whose woods these are, I think I know. It's a poem in which I feel every word to be a snowflake. There isn't one single hard sound. And the ultimate stroke of brilliance, the repetition of the last line, draws out the long miles of the journey ahead, so we feel his tiredness and every inch that still remains. Whose woods these are, I think I know. His house is in the village, though. He will not see me stopping here to watch his woods fill up with snow. My little horse must think it queer to stop without a farmhouse near, between the woods and frozen lake, the darkest evening of the year. He gives his harness bells a shake to ask if there is some mistake. The only other sounds the sweep of easy wind and downy flake. The woods are lovely, dark and deep, but I have promises to keep and miles to go before I sleep and miles to go before I sleep. The Andante from Mozart's Sonata for Two Pianos.
Ray introduces a series of religious topics in a programme called Beyond Belief on Radio 4. If you want to catch the whole programme, you can find it as a podcast on the BBC website. Today we hear how Patriarch Kirill, head of the Russian Orthodox Church, has supported Vladimir Putin in his invasion of Ukraine. I'm Ernie Ray and this is the Beyond Belief podcast. Vladimir Putin has affirmed that Russia's invasion of Ukraine is justified on religious grounds. The Patriarch of the Russian Orthodox Church, Kirill, agrees. So what is the spiritual basis of Vladimir Putin's religious war? Days before Russian troops entered Ukraine in late February, President Vladimir Putin gave an impassioned address to the Russian people, attempting to justify his impending invasion. He referred to Ukraine as an inalienable part of our own history, culture and spiritual space. It's one of the many references to faith and religion that have been interwoven into the Russian narrative of the war with Ukraine. The head of the Russian Orthodox Church, Patriarch Kirill, has been vocal in his support of Putin and his actions. What is the relationship between the Church, Patriarch Kirill, and Vladimir Putin? 
What are the beliefs that have been used to justify this violent aggression? And what are their impact both on Ukraine and also on the rest of the Orthodox Christian world? I'm joined by Father Andrew Louth, who is an archpriest in the Russian Orthodox Church here in the UK and Emeritus Professor of Theology at the University of Durham. Geraldine Fagan is an expert in religious affairs in the former Soviet states. She spent 12 years in Moscow between 1999 and 2012 monitoring religious freedom. She attends a Russian Orthodox Church in the United States. Geraldine, let me start with you. What has Vladimir Putin said about his spiritual justification for going into Ukraine? Well, he said um, a few things. Beginning with last year, he wrote a long historical essay in which he described Ukraine and Russia as sharing the same spiritual space. So he clearly sees them as one single indivisible entity. And then in his televised address before the invasion, when he announced the so-called special operation in the southeast of Ukraine, one of the reasons he gave for taking action was that he believed that Orthodox in Ukraine who are loyal to the Moscow Patriarch are persecuted by the Ukrainian government. I do see it as being that this very cosy relationship between the Patriarch and Putin, I do see it as very much the legacy of the Soviet era, during which the Soviet government had massive influence over the church and who was allowed to progress up the ranks of the church to bishop and patriarch level. And it's interesting because there are stories about Kirill's past history. There's certainly been links with the KGB. Some people have even suggested that Kirill was a mysterious agent called Mikhailov. Yes, that's that's right. Um, so there's very little access to KGB archives, but... Um, One thing that was gleaned in the early 90s uh, when the KGB archives in Moscow were briefly opened were the code names of various bishops. It was also possible to match the activities that were contained in those archives with public reports of what various bishops had done. And it was possible then to match Kirill's name with the code name Mikhailov. But having said that, what we don't know at all is the degree of his complicity with the regime. Just because a hierarch had a code name, that did not mean that they were a fully paid up KGB agent. Hello, God. Are you out there? Can you hear me? Are you listening anymore? Hello, God. If we're still on speaking terms, can you help just like before? I have questioned your existence. My resistance leaves me cold. Can you help me go the distance? Hello, God. Hello, hello. This whole world has gone to pieces. Can you fix it? Is there time? Hate and violence just increases. We're so selfish, cruel, and blind. We fight and kill each other in your name, defending you. Do you love some more than others? We're so lost and confused. Hello, God. Are you out there? Can you hear us? Are you listening? 
To prove ourselves to you 